Well, we're continuing in Hebrews uh, this morning, Hebrews chapter 6. And so this is the continuation of a sermon series in Hebrews. This is not a passage that I this week said, huh, I wonder what I should preach on. Let's do Hebrews 6, 4 through 8. In fact, I was reminded if our church was not committed to expository preaching, which is simply the, the idea that, that we, we pick a book of the Bible and we start at uh, verse 1 of chapter 1 and we, we work through the end, that's, that's expository preaching, and we're committed to that. But if we weren't committed to that, uh, you probably wouldn't ever hear me preach a sermon like I'm about to preach on these verses, because these, these verses, this is a tough text. We're, we're going to hear uh, a harsh warning uh, here this morning. Um, because we are committed to preaching through the text, this is, this is what we've come to. Um, and so this is what we're going to look at this morning. Uh, the, the title is Don't Fall Away, uh, Warning Number Three. And so before we look at the verses, I, I just want to kind of set the stage, lay maybe some groundwork that, that I think is necessary uh, in order to, to help us work through and get through these verses. Um, and so the first thing to recognize is as, as we've been through the, the book of Hebrews so far, uh, there have been prior warnings. And so that title is warning number three, which means there was warning number two and warning number one. And so first thing to recognize is that there are other warning passages. And so many people, when they come to, to these specific verses, they want to interpret them as if they stand alone and ignore the fact that there are other warnings in the same book. And so it's important to recognize because Hebrews was written as one book. It's, it's one letter. It starts in chapter 1 and it ends at the end in chapter 13. Uh, and so th- these, these, these warnings are all part of the same book. And so all of these warnings must be, ought to be, considered collectively. And, and when we consider all of them together, it helps us understand each warning individually. I mean, that's part of, part of Bible study, part of Hermeneutics 101, that you, you let the context shape what the, the, the passage means. And so there's one audience, there's one main purpose for the book as a whole. And, and as one commentator put it, Hebrews has one main point, which is don't fall away from Jesus. And that's been the point from chapter one. That's been the point in chapter two, three, four, five. And that's the point here in chapter six. It's unlikely, this commentator continues, that chapter 6, specifically these verses, has a different function from all the other warning passages in this sermon. And so, so let me just, by way of review, I think I have a slide with all the warning passages in Hebrews, but, but I just want to draw your attention to the, the, ones that we, the three that we've covered thus far so that you can see how they function in their context and how our passage today is going to be much like how they function. So all the way back in chapter 2, In verses 1 through 4, the the author of Hebrews wrote, Therefore we must pay closer attention to what we heard, lest we drift away from it. For the message declared by angels proved to be reliable, and every transgression or disobedience received a just retribution. How shall we escape if we neglect such a great salvation? And so the warning there, the first one in in chapter 2, was don't drift away from the message. Because if you do, you will not escape. And, And you not escape there is judgment. And so the clear purpose is don't drift away because there's danger in drifting. And so his purpose in the first warning in there in chapter 2 is to provoke, promote perseverance. He's talking to his readers who, who clearly recognize as Christians, and he's warning them against drifting away. And the warning is judgment will come if you drift, meaning if they as Christians drift away from Christ, if they forsake the message, there is no escape for them. That, that, that's the point that he makes. That, that's the clear intention of verses 1 through 4. He's not concerned with assuring them of, of their salvation. He's concerned with warning them. And he's warning them because he wants them to persevere. And then later, chapter 3, verses 12 through 13, here's another, this section, really chapter 3 all the way through chapter 4, there's, it's considered one warning, but there's really two specific warnings. But in chapter 3, verse 12, it says, "'Take care, brothers, lest there be in any of you an unbelieving, evil, unbelieving heart, leading you to fall away from the living God.'" So, so take care lest your evil, unbelieving heart leads you to fall away, right? Take care, beware. But solution, exhort one another every day. Okay, so, so take care that you don't fall away. The solution is to exhort one another, right? So, so again, the warning would be, if you're not exhorting one another, you're in danger of falling away, right? That's the purpose, is to promote exhortation, which then leads to perseverance. 
We could say that apart from taking care, apart from exhortation, the Christians were in danger of falling away. That's, the, that's what verse 12 of chapter 3 says. That be, beware, take care, lest your evil, unbelieving heart lead you to fall away. Right? So that's the purpose. And then later in chapter 4, we see verses 1 through 11, um, which I'll just read in, in verse 1 of chapter 4. Therefore, he writes, while the promise of entering rest still stands, let us fear lest any of you should seem to have failed to reach it. Right? So, so fear lest you not reach it. And then later down in verse 11, let us strive to enter that rest so that no one may fall by the same sort of disobedience, which was done. So, so not failing to reach it, entering that, le- at that rest was done by holding fast to the message, by faith. And he used this whole wilderness generation. He said they fell because the message wasn't received with faith. They were disobedient. And he's saying, don't let that happen to you. Don't fall. Don't fail to enter that rest. Don't fall by the same sort of disobedience. And the purpose there in chapter 4 the purpose of his writing to them, the purpose of those warnings was to prevent them from failing to enter the rest. The purpose was to prevent them from falling by the same sort of disobedience. And so that's the purpose of, of just those three brief look at those brief, the, uh, brief look at those three warnings makes clear that the purpose of the warnings, the purpose of the larger book is the main point, which is don't fall away from Jesus. Don't fall away. And in fact, in in chapter 10 and in chapter 12, there's two future warnings we'll come to, but they fit that exact pattern. In fact, chapter 10 is is a pretty harsh warning as well. But all these warnings in this letter are given to Christians in order to promote, in order to stress the importance, in order to warn them of the danger of forsaking Christ. They they want them to hold fast, to press on, to persevere, and to, to, to promote persevering. They highlight the danger of not persevering. What I've tried to make perfectly clear throughout our study thus far is that if you forsake Christ, if you turn from him, if you abandon him, if you refuse to trust him, if you refuse to look at Christ with faith and to to hold fast to him, to, to, to grip and hold fast to the gospel, if you do those things, you have no reason for confidence or assurance of salvation. And this shouldn't be controversial. This doesn't deny the assurance of salvation or the confidence that someone can have in their salvation. It simply affirms that salvation is dependent upon faith in Jesus. And it's not a one-time faith. Yeah, it's a faith that commences at one time, but it's a faith that that continues, it perseveres. And so if you're here today and you made a decision to, to believe in Christ a long time ago, if here today you're not believing in Christ, you should not trust in that decision a long time ago. Faith in Christ is something that that continues. I know I'm a Christian because I believe in Jesus here and now. Right now, I know that I needed Jesus crucified, buried, and resurrected for my salvation. And so as as Christians, what, what we see is that we ought to promote faith in Christ from first to last. And so, so we tell the, the baby Christian who is new to the faith, we tell the Christian who is mature in the faith, we tell the Christian who is suffering or the Christian who is facing persecution, we tell them all the same thing, don't abandon Christ. Keep the faith, hold fast, finish the race, persevere, hold on. I know it's hard, but, but just keep holding on. That, that's our message because there is safety in, in union and, and holding fast to Christ in the gospel. That's where there is safety and security. And so we tell that to to every Christian, young or old, safe or suffering, we tell them that because if any Christian forsakes Christ and abandons him and turns their back on him, they have no reason for confidence because confidence is found in Christ. And so just a comment, if if you have a view of of the once saved, always saved, and that view is understood as you can make a one-time decision and never think about Christ ever again from that point forward, never seek to honor or obey him or worship him, if you think you can pray a prayer and then totally abandon Christ afterwards, never to think of him again, and you think you can still have confidence in salvation, that's just crazy. And worse than crazy, it's just not biblical. We don't find that category. Well, you prayed a prayer so you're safe. You can do whatever you want now. That's not the, the nature of saving faith. And so confidence in salvation, assurance of salvation, it comes from Christ and turning to him, holding fast to him, persevering faith in him. These are the ways that we have assurance. Doesn't mean we're perfect. Doesn't mean we don't fall. Doesn't mean we don't sin. But it means that we're always eventually going back to Christ, knowing that it's in him alone that we have assurance. 
And so this is not to say Christians don't struggle with sin. It's not to say that sometimes Christians have seasons or stages of rebellion or disobedience. That, that is a, that's an experience of, of real, genuine Christians. However, at the end of the day, the difference between a season of rebellion for a Christian and the rebellion of a non-Christian is whether or not he or she returns to Christ. Because a, a, a rebellion that never, ever returns to Christ, there's no confidence of, of salvation there. But a rebellion that is ended by a, a repentance, a turning to Christ, well, well, then that fits the category, oh, there was a season of rebellion, or that it was a backsliding that, that ended. Whether or not one's falling away is permanent or temporary, that's the difference. And, and I would say there's a difference between falling and falling away. One is much graver than the other. And the reality is a falling away that persists, that doesn't end with a return to Christ, that is a falling away that has no reason for confidence. Which is why the warnings in Hebrews are calls to hold fast, to remain faithful, to persevere. And so that's, that's the, the, the context and that's the, the groundwork for these warnings. One commentator writes, it's, worth, it's well worth noting that the author is addressing a specific situation. He's not writing a calm, disinterested essay on the question of the perseverance of the saints, in which he carefully details the full range of possibilities that confront the readers. On the contrary, he is very anxious for the ultimate well-being of his readers. They must know the grave seriousness of falling away from their Christian faith and recognize that there is no easy way back from apostasy. Again, the author's strong pastoral concerns emerge. And so that the author of Hebrews, as he's writing verses 4 through 12, this is not an attempt at, at theology 101. Right? This, he's writing to people who are being tempted to fall away from Christ. And they appear to be on the verge of forsaking him. And so his warning is urgent and harsh. That's his purpose, to, to wake them up. He wants them to persevere. And so with all that in mind, having said all of that, let's, let's look at our passage. I'm going to actually begin in, in verse 11 of chapter 5 and then read through chapter, uh, chapter 6, verse 12, just so we can get the larger passage. So beginning in Hebrews 5, verse 11, the author writes, about this we have much to say, and it is hard to explain since you've become dull of hearing. For though by this time you ought to be teachers, you need someone to teach you again the basic oracles of God. You need milk, not solid food. For everyone who lives on milk is unskilled in the word of righteousness since he is a child. But solid food is for the mature, for those who have their powers of discernment trained by constant practice to distinguish good from evil. Therefore, let us leave the elementary doctrine of Christ and go on to maturity, not laying again a foundation of repentance from dead works and of faith toward God and of instruction about washings, laying on of hands, the resurrection of the dead and eternal judgment. Let us move on in verse three. And this we will do if God permits. Verse four, for it is impossible in the case of those who have once been enlightened, who have tasted the heavenly gift and have shared in the Holy Spirit, and have tasted the goodness of the word of God, and tasted the powers of the age to come, and then have fallen away, it's impossible to restore them again to repentance, since they are crucifying once again the Son of God to their own harm and holding him up to contempt. For land that has drunk the rain that often falls on it and produces a crop useful to those for whose sake it is cultivated receive a blessing from God. But if that land bears thorns and thistles, it is worthless and near to being cursed, and its end is to be burned. Verse 9, though we speak in this way, yet in your case, beloved, we feel sure of better things, things that belong to salvation. For God is not unjust so as to overlook your work and the love that you've shown for his name in serving the saints, as you still do. And we desire each of you, each one of you, to show the same earnestness to have the full assurance of hope until the end, so that you may not be sluggish, but be imitators of those who through faith and patience inherit the promises. Let, let's pray um, as, we, as we look through this passage. Uh, Father, I pray for your um, ministering to us through your word. I pray that you would encourage us. Would you give us ears to hear the warning? And may you encourage us with the, the hope um, that is offered here as well. It's in Christ's name I pray. Amen. 
Well, so as we look through these, these verses specifically, so we're going to, I read, I read a larger passage, we're going to look specifically at verses 4 through 12, and we're reminded, the reason I read the, the whole passage is because the, the call of uh, end of chapter 5, end of, end of chapter 6 was, was to persevere, to grow up, to press on, and we saw that a failure to do so, a failure to grow up and mature was a dangerous place to be, and that's why it, the, the warning here picks up following that. And the point of the warning, if if the readers don't go on into maturity, they will be in grave danger of falling away altogether. That's the warning. And that danger, the danger of falling away, is what the author points out in these verses. So there's, there's three points here from these verses. So first we'll see the first point, a harsh word or a harsh warning, verses four through six. And then we'll see an illustration, which illustrates the warning, but the, the illustration there in verses seven through eight. And then finally, a, a gentle word there in verses 9 through 12. So a harsh word, an illustration, and a gentle word. So, so let's start there, verses 4 through 6, the harsh word, or the harsh warning. Now remember, the call has just been made to leave the elementary doctrine and to press on to maturity. And here to emphasize the seriousness and the necessity of maturing, he gives them a harsh word of warning. Look there at verse 4. For it is impossible... In the case of those who, stop there, right? He, he's going to list out six descriptors. It's impossible in the case of those who, then here's six descriptors. And these six descriptors are descriptors of those that he's talking about. And he's in, it's impossible for those. He lists six things, and then he finishes what's impossible there at the end of verse six. And so it's impossible for those who, who fit this description. He ends in verse six, and it's impossible to restore them again to repentance. And so it's impossible for those described to be, to be restored again to repentance, meaning those who fit in the categories described cannot be restored. That's his point. It's impossible for those who have done this and done this and done this and done this and then have fallen away. It's impossible for those to be restored unto repentance. Now stay with me. Some of you are saying, well, wait, wait, wait a minute. But as we look at these six descriptors, Right? This is where we remember the, the nature of the warning passages throughout Hebrews. Every other warning passage is given to Christians. There's no question about that. And so the warnings here in chapter 6 are given to Christians. It makes sense that those being warned are Christians. And it would also make sense that the descriptors of those described in the warning, if those descriptions match those of the, the ones being warned. In other words, as we work through the six descriptors, it's going to be clear. I'm going to argue that, that everything that's described is that the experience of a Christian, a genuine Christian. And it's the Christians who are being harshly warned against falling away. That's his purpose. He's not saying whether or not a true Christian can fall away. That's not on his radar. Instead, what is on his radar is the danger of the Christians he's writing to. And in order to prevent them from falling away, he warns them. I mean, it's like a few, few weeks ago, I took three of our kids, our three oldest kids, out on a bike ride. And we were going to a park across from our neighborhood, and we had to cross a somewhat busy street. It's not normally very busy, but at this time of day, it was pretty busy. And in crossing the street, there, there was a car that was coming that didn't have its headlights on, and I had missed it, and I told our kids, well, let's, let's go across. I hadn't seen the car. I saw it. It was still a long way off, but I saw it, and I immediately, I, I, I was filled with fear, and, and I look and I see one of our kids was continuing across. I'd said, guys, let's stop. Well, one of our children did not hear that. And so I did what any good parent does. I screamed at the top of my, I mean, there are walkers in the park that are stopping saying, well, what's going on? I screamed and I screamed their name and it was my yelling. It was my, my loud, serious warning. Dad doesn't normally yell like that. Upon hearing my warning that this child knew, whoa, I better stop. And so my warning awakened my child to the danger that was present. And in that moment, I wasn't thinking about anything else. I was thinking, there's danger. I must warn her or him. <laughs> and I think that's what the author of Hebrews is doing here. He isn't thinking about whether or not it's possible for a true Christian to lose their salvation. He's not writing a, a calm, disinterested essay. He's writing concerned about the eternal destiny of these Christians. He's warning them. And he, he, the way he warns them is to tell them, if you fall away, if you forsake Christ, you are never coming back. And that's his warning. And so let's look at these de descriptors. Back to verse 4. It's impossible in the case of those who, now how does he describe this? First descriptor, have once been enlightened or having once been enlightened. 
So, so, so what does the word enlightened mean? Well, it's used again in chapter 10, verse 32. The exact same word is used in Hebrews later. And in that context, the most natural, I think the most clear interpretation of the word there is a reference to conversion. In, in, in chapter 10, verse 32, he tells him to recall the former days. He says, after you were enlightened, when you endured a hard struggle with sufferings. Now, I say conversion is the most natural way to understand enlightened there because their conversion is what brought about their, their, their struggles and their suffering. It was their enlightenment. They were, they were enlightened. They were converted. They became Christians, and then the struggles and the sufferings began. And so he's saying, recall, the, the, when after you were enlightened. And so enlightened, I think, in that context, and, and it makes sense here in this context, is simply a reference to an event that happened once. Remember, once you've been enlightened, it's a, it's a conversion language. It's a conversion idea. You, you, you once were not enlightened, but then you were. Right? It is a, a, a convincing event. It happened. So that's the first descriptor. Second descriptor, those who have tasted the heavenly gift. Now, now the heavenly gift, that, that's a little more unclear. Uh, sometimes when, when the heavenly gift, when that description is used, it, it's a reference to the Holy Spirit. Uh, because the Holy Spirit is mentioned specifically in the, the next descriptor, I, I don't think that's the point here. Um, I, I think probably heavenly gift here is, is the, 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 the salvation that has come from heaven to them. So they've, they've tasted the, 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 the gift of salvation, the gift of new life. So I think that's what heavenly gift means, but, but, but that's not certain. But what is certain is what he means by the word tasted. Right? That's not unclear because tasted doesn't mean just to put it on the tip of your tongue in the way that we would, would sometimes use it. So some people in reading these descriptors say, well, 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 this cannot be talking about Christians because Christians can't fall away. So look there, tasted. They weren't true Christians. They just tasted it. They're just almost Christians. That, that's what he's writing to. Well, I, that's, I don't think that's true. And that, that, that is not true specifically because of how tasted is used in Hebrews. In Hebrews chapter 2, verse 9, you'll read that Jesus, by the grace of God, tasted death for everyone. And that word, the same word as 6-4, tasted, it doesn't mean he kind of experienced it. We don't believe that Jesus just, just kind of died. Just, he just put death kind of on the tip of his tongue. No, he tasted death. He fully experienced it. And so tasted, and there are other places where, where this meaning works itself out, tasted means to fully experience something. And so when these people are described in, in this description as having tasted the, the heavenly gift, they have fully experienced salvation, that there's nothing lacking in it. And that word tasted is used again in verse 5. Look, they've not only have they, they tasted the heavenly gift, verse 5, they've tasted the goodness of the word of God. In verse 5, which is, which is right along with that, they've tasted, that's what, what's carried over, they've tasted the goodness of God, they've tasted the powers of the age to come. And so these people have tasted, fully experienced the goodness of the word of God. They, they've received the benefits of, of experiencing the gospel message. They, they've tasted it and they've tasted the powers of the age to come. The, these people were all in there. There's nothing half-hearted or false or superficial about their involvement with the things of God. They'd fully experienced the goodness of the gospel. They'd fully experienced the power of God at work in the lives of his people. They, they are part of this people. And so those, those descriptors make a strong case for, in my opinion at least, and I think, I, I think it's clear, make a strong case for the identity of the people being true, genuine believers. They're Christians. But we skipped the descriptor, which I think really seals the deal, which is the third descriptor there at the end of verse 4. It says, those who have shared in the Holy Spirit. They've shared in the Holy Spirit. Now, some people say, look at Simon the Magician. It seemed like he shared in the Holy Spirit, and then, then he, he lost it. So, so you can kind of share in the Holy Spirit and then not, not be a full participant. I don't think that's a good example because the language here, again, the word share, it's the same word, same language used earlier in the book of Hebrews when it said that, that Jesus shared in the flesh and blood that humans share in. Right? So it's the same word that's translated share or partook. And so, so earlier in Hebrews, it said that humans share in flesh and blood and that Jesus partook of or shared in the same things. Same word. And so in the same way that Jesus shared in flesh and blood, these people shared in the Holy Spirit. That, that's the word. That's, how it, that's what it means. 
And so you don't, you don't just, just kind of share in the Holy Spirit. You, Jesus didn't kind of share in flesh and blood. He wasn't just kind of human. He was human because he shared in it. And so these people have, have become sharers of the Holy Spirit. Again, the point is that these people are true Christians. I mean, one commentator said, it's hard to imagine a clearer way of saying that the readers were believers than the descriptors that are laid out. But, but, but before, we get to the, before we move to the next section, look at the final descriptor. Because that's where things get a little uneasy. So he says, it's impossible in the case of those who've once been enlightened, who've tasted the heavenly gift, have shared in the Holy Spirit, and have tasted the goodness of the word of God and of the powers of the age to come, verse 6, and then, final descriptor, have fallen away. So, so that's the final descriptor. And it's this descriptor that makes all the difference in the world. So this is a warning. Our author does not accuse his addressees of being in this condition. It's a warning that should remind them of the seriousness of their situation and the importance of renewing their commitment. So, so the nature of this warning is that he isn't declaring them guilty of falling away. So he doesn't say that this is them. In fact, the, 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 the fact that he issues a warning supposes that there's still hope for them. I mean, isn't that how a warning works? However, he wants them to know hope is gone if they fall away. That's the warning. Those who have had all these blessings, those who have experienced all the gifts of God, those who have, who have shared in the Holy Spirit, tasted the goodness of the Word of God, tasted the, 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 the goodness of the Word and the powers of the age to come, those who have experienced this, those who have become genuine Christians who then fall away, for those people, a restoration under repentance is impossible. That's his point. That's his warning. Now, before we go any further, let, let, me, let me make sure that we understand what is meant here by falling away. That's not something that can happen unknowingly. It's not something that, it's not just a specific sin that, that you accidentally stumble into. Right? This falling away here is, is apostasy. It's a total abandonment. It's a complete abandonment of the gospel of Jesus Christ who is revealed in the gospel. It's not a matter of faults and errors, but of making a deliberate choice. That's what falling away is. In fact, John Owen defined the falling away this way, a voluntary resolved relinquishment of an apostasy from the gospel. A voluntary resolved relinquishment of an apostasy from the gospel, the faith, rule, and obedience thereof. And he continues, which cannot be without casting the highest reproach imaginable upon the person of Christ himself. So, so this is what's being warned against. Those who fall away are those who turn their backs on Christ and abandon him completely. And in turning your back on and abandoning your only hope from salvation, that's what you do when you abandon Christ. When you turn your back on Christ and you abandon him, you abandon your only hope for salvation. And so it's impossible to be restored to repentance. Because by definition, falling away means cutting yourself off from the only source of salvation. No means of salvation is available other than that which is here finally rejected. So to fall away means I'm putting up a road closed sign and I'm not going that way. So of course you can't go that way when you turn your back and say, I'm not going that way. It's impossible for true apostates to experience conversion anew. God will not force them into the kingdom. And so the seriousness of apostasy and, and, and what it means of this falling away is described further there in verse 6. They can't be restored to repentance because, he continues, they are crucifying once again the Son of God to their own harm and holding him up to contempt. And so to turn your back on Christ is to deny the necessity of his death. He just hung there as a guilty criminal. There's nothing special about that death. Oh, there's no need for him to die, right? That, that's what it means to turn your back on. It means there's no value in what happened there on that cross on Calvary. And that's what he's saying. To, to turn your back on him is, is to make, make a mockery of his death. And so the point being made here is simply that for one to forsake Christ and to, to fall away, to disown him, is to align yourself with the enemies of God who are the ones who first crucified him. To fall away from Christ is to demand or require a second crucifixion, a second salvation, because the first was worthless. That, that's what it means to turn from him, to abandon him. 
And this is something which we have seen and will continue to see. A second salvation is not coming. Christ died once. That death was sufficient and it accomplished its purpose. And you either hold fast to Christ and his once for all death for the payment of sin, or you don't. And the crux of the warning is simply, if you let go, if you abandon this, if you don't hold fast, you have no hope. And that's, that shouldn't be controversial. He wants them to know the danger at hand. And so he warns them harshly. Now, one author says this near the end of his comments on, on this section. He says, it would not serve the author's purpose to speak of the possibility of a return from apostasy. That's not on his radar. So, so think about, I'm warning you, and if you fall away, you're never coming back. Parentheses. Well, actually, so if you do fall away, you can turn back to Christ and it'll be okay. So, so go ahead, fall away. That, that undermines the whole purpose of the warning. So he doesn't feel the need to go into further detail about, well, if you do apostatize, you can come back if you repent and turn to Christ. No, let's not go that route. Let's just not fall away the first time. That's why he's making the warning. And so the readers must be made to see the seriousness of what they are contemplating. The severity of his statement is to be explained by the situation. It's not a time for words concerning God's grace and the possibility of restoration. And so, of course, outside of this context, we can say with great confidence that God's grace can and often does reach those who lapse into apparent apostasy. And we'll say more about that at the end. But when God's grace reaches those, they turn or return to Christ. And thus are no longer those who have fallen away. But for the readers of Hebrews, at this moment, the warning is real. It ought to be received as a genuine, real warning to real Christians that if you fall away, you're never coming back. Let's, let's move secondly. We'll, we'll come back to that. We'll move second, our, our second point, verses 7 through 8. We see that the illustration so it's an agricultural illustration. So look there, verse 7. For, so it's a continuation, for land that has drunk the rain that often falls on it and produces a crop useful to those for whose sake it is cultivated, this land receives a blessing from God, verse 8. But if it, that is the land that receives the, the blessing, receives the rain, drinks it, if that land bears thorns and thistles, it is worthless and near to being cursed, and its end is to be burned. And so, so a Really simple illustration, and it, it serves to describe what's just been said in verses 4 through 6. It is actually a re-emphasis of the warning. So, so there's two types of land. Both types of land drink the rain. Both experience the blessings of rain. The first type of land produced a crop. right? So, so it receives the rain, and it produces a crop. And this land receives, it says, a blessing from God. But the second type of land... Notice the wording here. This is why I say this is, this is actually a warning, a, a re-emphasis of the warning. The second type of land, notice it doesn't say that it does bear thorns and thistles. That's not how the second land is mentioned. Right there at verse 8, but if it bears thorns and thistles. That, that's a, that's a con contingency. If this happens, he doesn't say it does happen. He says, if it happens, if it produces thorns and thistles, this is the warning. If it doesn't bring forth a useful crop, it's worthless and it's cursed, and in the end, it's going to be burned. Right? So, so again, it's as if he's saying, you are at the point. You, you have received all these blessings. What are you going to do? Are you going to remain faithful and steadfast and, and produce useful crop? Because if, if you don't, if you produce thorns and thistles, right, you have no hope for blessing from God. You have only hope for curse. Right? So, so it's a continuation of the warning, and it's a very simple agricultural uh, analogy or illustration. And so the land clearly represents the hearers, those who receive great blessings from God. And the fruit of that blessing naturally is useful crop, perseverance holding fast. Well, that, that's what that would be meaning. Right? So, so it produces useful things, but land that receives the great blessings from God and doesn't produce useful things is cursed. And so again... That land, in light of verses 4 through 6, is a picture, a warning to those contemplating falling Christ. To fall away is to bear thorns and thistles and to face judgment in the end. To fall away is to turn your back on the gospel of Christ and Christ himself. And in the end, it leads to only cursing. And so the illustration makes the same point. It's a way of continuing the warning. Don't fall away. 
Don't fall away. You have these great blessings. Now, now hold fast. Persevere. There's great danger in falling away. There's, there's end-time cursing for falling away. There, there's not hope for blessing if you fall away. Which then leads, third point, verses 9 through 12, we see a gentle word. So having just issued a harsh warning and then an illustration that highlighted the necessity of, of producing useful crops, a continuation of the warning, he then turns to encourage them. And to give them a gentle word, an encouraging word, which, which again, a, 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 an application here is sometimes we need harsh warnings. Sometimes we need gentle words. Sometimes we need both of them back to back, right? Wisdom is knowing when to give what, right? So, so, so sometimes we do need harsh words. He gives them harsh words. But, but here in verses 9 through 12, he, he gives them a gentle word, an encouraging word. So look there at verse 9. Though we speak in this way. So he knows what he's just said is, is going to be hard for them to listen to, hard for them to hear. Though we speak in this way, yet in your case, beloved. Notice that, that term of endearment. Beloved, loved ones. We feel sure of better things. Not, not the things that we're just warning you against. We feel sure of better things, things that belong to salvation. And so here's a clear change in tone. He's moved on from the warning, and now he's gentle. But both, remember, are given to promote perseverance. So the warning, it disturbs. While these promises, it gives assurance. And both are meant to, to, to promote faithfulness, perseverance. That They serve the same end, which is that the listeners might persevere. And so verses 9 through 12, so though it's a gentle word, it is still promoting perseverance. They just do so in a different way than verses 4 through 8, where verses 4 through 8 warn them of the danger of falling away. Verses 9 through 12 encourage them regarding what he sees in them. I'm convinced of better things for you because I've seen you. I've seen your lives. I'm confident, brothers and sisters, that you're not going to fall away. He's confident that they're going to hear the warning and they're going to press on. They're going to respond the way that they ought to respond, producing and continuing to produce useful crops. That, according to verses 9, or 10 through 12, the, these useful crops are evidence of salvation. Look there at verse 10, how he continues. For, it's, for God's not unjust so as to, to overlook your work and the love that you have shown for his name in serving the saints, as you still do. And we desire each one of you to show the same earnestness, to have the full assurance of hope until the end, so that you may not be sluggish, but instead of being sluggish, that you might be imitators of those who through faith and patience inherit the promises. And so the hope that the author points to is the work and love that these Christians have shown in the past, a work and love that he says continues even now. And it's in the looking back that the author calls them to persevere, to show the same earnestness that they have shown. They've been resilient. They've held fast up to this point. They're still there, but, but he's afraid that they're, they're, they're going to falter. He's saying, I'm confident you're going to keep going. And I want you to keep showing the same earnestness, to have the full assurance of hope until the end. Because if you stop now, if you don't show it till the end, it's all for naught. I think that's his point. That's how the warning functions. Even though there's an encouraging word, I think that's how the warning would be received, to persevere till the end. And so the sluggishness, the laziness, the immaturity that, that he's described at the beginning of chapter 6 and brings up again here, right, it is the enemy of them. It's the enemy of their perseverance, of their progress, of their pressing on. And the way to combat those things that will lead to destruction is to persevere. And so he's calling them to persevere. And he reminds them that they're not alone in this calling. Their perseverance is walking the way that's been paved by the saints before them. Notice how he says that you may be imitators of those who through faith and patience inherit the promises. Right? They're not the only ones who've had to walk this path of resistance. But the recipe, recipe for perseverance, which we'll see worked out, is faith plus patience. Faith plus patience. That leads to perseverance. In fact, this sets the stage for, for discussion at the end of chapter 6, for, of Abraham, who inherited the promise through faith and patience. It was a long time coming, but he had faith and patience, which is something we'll look at next week. But, but also later in Hebrews 11, right, this serves also as a precursor. There will be in chapter 11 a whole host of witnesses, a whole host of those who through faith and patience inherited the promises. 
And so this ends our passage here and sets the stage for what's to come, Lord willing, next week. And we'll look at the, the rest of chapter 6 in, in a discussion on Abraham inheriting the promises. But our author ends with a hopeful assessment of his readers and then concludes this, this roller coaster ride through verses 4 through 12. And so as you look at application, I want to just close with, with three points of application and the first point that I want to make is simply the, the reality of eternal security, of, of perseverance of the saints. This first application, it's not from the text, but, but I think it's a necessary reminder in light of this text. It's a reminder of a, a doctrine that stands in healthy tension with this text. And so I just want to remind you of the reality of, of the eternal security, the safety of the believer the Bible is clear that the true believer will persevere and will never fall away. And so here, I just, I just have a, a, a handful of, of passages here. Philippians 1.6, He who began a good work in you will bring it to completion. Philippians 1.6. Romans 8, verse 30, Those whom God predestined, he also called. Those whom he called, he also justified. Those whom he justified, he also glorified. This is sometimes called the, the golden chain of salvation that goes from, from God's mind in eternity past predestination to eternity past in the future glorification. He says, those that he started, he's going to finish. Right? You, you can't be predestined and called and justified and not be glorified. Right? That, that is a, that's a, a clear teaching of the perseverance, that what God starts, he finishes. Later in Romans 8, nothing shall separate us from the love of God in Christ Jesus. And they list all these nothings. Life is one of them. Nothing that you experience in this life can separate you from the love of God that's been shown in Christ Jesus. 1 Peter 1, Christians are kept by the power of God through faith unto final salvation. And there's the, an incorruptible inheritance that awaits. And, and it's God's power that keeps the believer. That's 1 Peter 1. Ephesians 4, Christians are sealed by the Holy Spirit for the day of redemption. That, that's the final in time salvation that will eventually be revealed when the, 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 the Lord comes again and Christians are sealed by the Holy Spirit for that day. Similar, similar theme there earlier in Ephesians chapter 1, Christians receive the Holy Spirit and he is a guarantee of the inheritance. A guarantee of the inheritance so that when you, when you repent and believe, you're given the Holy Spirit and the Holy Spirit is a guarantee that you're going to get the inheritance, the end-time salvation that God has promised to you. Or John's gospel, from the words of Christ himself, everyone who looks on the Son and believes in him should have eternal life, and I will raise him up on the last day. So, so believing in Christ leads to eternal life and a final resurrection. So if you believe in Christ, you're going to be raised in the last day to life. And then later in John chapter 10, my sheep hear my voice and I know them and they follow me. Verse 28, this is the, the good shepherd speaking. I give my sheep eternal life and they will never perish and no one will snatch them out of my hand. That's security. That's promise. That's safety. That, that's that's, that's a, a smooth sailing ship or not smooth sailing ship. That's a ship that can sail whatever sea it wants to and it's going to be secure. And so, so the Bible makes clear that this is a reality, that once you are saved, you are saved. The believer is secure. Someone who is truly saved will not and cannot fall away. I mean, I believe that. that that's hope-giving for weak and weary saints like me. So obviously, I recognize the tension between this truth and the way that I've explained this passage. But, but don't leave here thinking, I believe this passage teaches that you can lose your salvation. I don't think that. But here's the relationship that we can't miss. It's the relationship between genuine faith and perseverance. True faith, genuine faith, authentic Christian faith, saving faith is faith that perseveres. That's what it is. So it could be said, a lack of apostasy manifests True Christian faith. So a faith that doesn't apostatize reveals that it is true Christian faith. Whereas false faith, non-genuine faith, faith that isn't real, is faith that is forsaken and never returned to. Genuine faith is never not persevering faith. And so that's a relationship. If you have faith, it's going to persevere. And you're eventually going to return to Christ and hold fast to Christ. 
And, and so one that professes faith and has all that seems to be genuine faith who, who falls away and never comes back, this doesn't say, oh, oh, they lost their salvation. No, it says they never actually had it, which is exactly the point of 1 John 2. When John, so, so there's the, the Antichrist, those, those false teachers, and he says, they went out from us. They're no longer part of us. They went out from us, but they were not of us. For if they had been of us, they would have continued with us. But, he says, they went out that it might become plain that they all are not of us. And so they're going out, their forsaking of the, the community of faith, the forsaking of the gospel, proves that they were never truly of them. And so genuine faith doesn't do that. Genuine faith is persevering faith. Which leads to the second point of application, which is simply the warnings, specifically here in, in, in chapter 6 of Hebrews, the warning is a means to perseverance. So, so that's how I think this, this makes the most sense. The most clear reading of this is that this warning is functioning as a means to perseverance. So if all true believers will persevere and cannot fall away, why in the world would this warning be in Hebrews? And so if you're following, if you recognize what I'm saying, you should be asking yourself, well, why in the world is the author warning them that they must not fall away? You've just said they can't fall away. Why would he warn them not to fall away? Is he warning them against something that isn't possible? And the answer is yes, he's warning them against something that isn't possible. But also the answer is no, because the warning itself is the means of it not being possible. In other words, the warning is a real, genuine, legitimate warning. He's talking to Christians and he's saying, Christian, if you fall away, it's impossible for you to come back. And when that warning falls upon the ears of the true believer, when he or she hears that warning, he or she says to himself, I better not fall away. And so the warning, the real danger expressed is the thing that wakes them up and leads to perseverance, which leads to, I'm not, I don't want to do that. So, so there, there's a, a famous London preacher named Charles Spurgeon, and he says what I'm saying in a much better way. So listen to this quote from Spurgeon. He says, quote, God preserves his children from falling away, but he keeps them by the use of means. And one of these is showing them what would happen if they were to fall away. So here's an illustration. He continues, there's a deep precipice. What's the best way to keep anyone from going down there? Why, to tell them that if he did, he would inevitably be dashed to pieces. So don't go down there because if you do, you're going to die. So God says, my child, if you fall over this precipice, you will be dashed to pieces. What does the child do? They say, no, 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 I can always come back. I'm just going to jump. No, the child says, Father, keep me. Father, hold me and I shall be safe. The warning leads the believer to greater dependence on God, to a holy fear and caution because he knows that if he were to fall away, he could not be renewed. And he stands as far away as possible from the great gulf because he knows that if he were to fall into there, it would be no salvation for him. And so do you see the warning is the means of perseverance? I think that's how Hebrews chapter 6 verses 4 through 8 are functioning. The warning is the means. Just like a parent's scream alerts the child of the danger at hand and leads the child away from the danger. So this warning passage and others in the New Testament function as the very means of keeping Christians from falling away. So the promise of security doesn't eliminate the necessity of warning. So both are true. And a great example, I, I'm not going to read this, but, but you can write down Acts 27. It's a, it's a great, it's, this example perfectly illustrates how these two things, the, the, the security and the warning, work together. So in Acts 27, Paul is on his way to Rome, and he's on a ship, and, and he's, he's saying, we shouldn't go because it's going to be a lot of storm. We're going to lose some stuff. It's going to be dangerous. They, they go anyways. They're caught in the storm. And so Paul's really afraid. He's like, we're, we're going to die. But in verse 23 of Acts 27, Paul says, he's telling these people, he said, don't be afraid. I know the storms are rough, but I was visited by an angel of the Lord who promised me I'm going to get to Rome and not one person on this boat is going to die. So, so Paul is told in a vision by an angel of the Lord, that's what's going to happen. No one's going to die, right? So that's the promise. No one's going to die. Now, a few verses later, they're approaching land. It's still rough seas. And there's some sailors who are trying to escape from the ship. And in verse 31 of Acts 27, Paul says to the centurion, the one in charge on the ship, he says, unless these men stay on board, you can't be saved. 
In other words, unless these men stay, you're going to die. Now, why does Paul issue that warning? He was told no one's going to die. So why didn't Paul say, huff, God made a promise. Let him go ahead. No, he says God's promise is going to be kept, but they have to be warned. If they leave, they're going to die. And so God's promise didn't lead Paul to say, well, I don't have to issue a warning. Paul's warning was the means by which the men were kept safe, and everyone did arrive safely on the shore. And so God's promise was fulfilled, but the warning was the means of bringing that about. God uses means. I mean, it's just like the gospel, just like the, the gospel message. God could save everyone any way he wanted, but he uses means. He uses a gospel witness. So we need missionaries in Poland. So we need missionaries in Thailand and Turkey and, and in Hampton. We need people who, who speak the gospel, who tell people about Jesus who's been crucified and buried and, and resurrected. Because people aren't saved apart from hearing the good news of the gospel and of, by turning from sins and putting their faith in Jesus. God uses means to accomplish his purposes. And so the warning passage is a means of perseverance, which then leads us to the final application, which is simply this, don't fall away. Or I put an explanation, exclamation point behind it, don't fall away. Don't. Don't do it. So, so maybe you're here, you're a believer, and you, you, you feel close to the edge, whatever your circumstance or your situation, hear me say, don't fall away. Don't do it. Hold fast to Christ. Cling to him. Do not let go. The cost is far greater than you realize. Don't do it. Hold fast. Persevere. Maybe you have a family member, a friend, a son, daughter, grandchild, a, a sibling, a neighbor, someone who, who you knew growing up and you know that they grew up in the church. You know they've, they've made a profession of faith, but, but, but you seem like they have fallen away. The application for you isn't to give up on them and say, well, they're never coming back. The, the application for you is don't give up on them, but point them to Jesus. Point them to Christ. Call them to Christ. Say, there's hope for you in Jesus. If you don't come back, there's not hope for you. But there's always hope in repentance. There's always hope in Christ. And then for the believer, and this I think is probably most of, most of you, the believer who, who, who is holding fast to Christ right now, let this warning keep you far from the precipice. Solidify this in your mind. Con, con, confirm it in your heart. I'm never going close to that precipice. I'm staying far away from it. Keep holding fast. I mean, as I was, as I was finishing the sermon, I thought specifically of many of you who are, who are seemingly closer to the end of your race than the beginning. Some of you who are seemingly near the end of your race, and I know many of you are tired and weary, and, and many of you are, are ready to go. You're just waiting on the call. You're just waiting for the Lord to take you, and you're, you're, you're ready. And I just want to encourage you, hold fast. Don't give up now. Hold fast. The Lord is near. If he tarries, you're going to be with him soon. So, so hold fast. Don't let go, believer, dear saint, dear brother, dear sister. Persevere. I was reminded of, of the martyrdom of, of a man named Polycarp, who was uh, said to be a disciple of the Apostle John, the one who you know, wrote uh, the, the Revelation and then the, the epistles of John. And, and it said that as he was being led to his death, right, he was being persecuted and he was going to be burned alive. And it said that as he's approached, right, so, so all he has to do is he has to deny Christ and acknowledge Caesar as Lord. And, and so as this, he's 86 years old and he, he's making his way, he's being led into the stadium and people are saying, just, just forsake him. Just do it, they'll let you go. All you gotta do is just say, I denounce Christ. And, and it said that Polycarp responded with this. And this is what reminded me of, of, of some of my dear, our dear members. He says, quote, for 86 years, I've been his servant and he's done me no wrong. How could I now blaspheme my king who saved me? What a way to go. I, I'm, I'm going to the end, and it's even said, the Lord who's kept me thus far, he will keep me. So you don't even have to nail me to this stake. I'll stay here because God's going to keep me here just like he's kept me for these 84 years. And so application is, hold fast, believer. May we all, by God's great persevering grace, persevere until the end. Let me pray for us.